This is firefighter Raphael Poirier for Firehouse Subs. Introducing the new spicy Cajun chicken sub, Cajun seasoned grilled chicken breast, zesty cherry peppers, and house-made Cajun mayo. Just $5.55 for a medium. Remember, a portion of every sub you buy helps provide life-saving equipment for first responders. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Limited time only, plus tax. Participating locations. Firehouse Subs would donate a minimum of $1 million in 2019 to the Firehouse Subs Public Safety Foundation by donating 0.11% of every purchase. From New York City, it's the Todd Berry Podcast. The Todd Berry Podcast. Hey everyone, welcome to the Todd Berry Podcast. I think this is my first musician guest ever. Wow. I know, out of 28, what am I, 27? I don't know how many. By the time this airs, who knows how many I'll have. What are you saying? You're going to put this somewhere back in the queue? And I'm like, yeah, I have like a, I have a vault with like 300 pre-recorded episodes. And I, I roll them out. I go, good one, good one. Then I sneak in a bad one. Right. Then I get another good one to get them back. Then a couple of sucky ones in a row. A couple row. of sucky ones, and then they're... Uh, you know, during the holidays, a few sucky ones. Right. Nobody's listening. Or, or, Maybe they are listening. Or they're all at home and they have nothing yeah, else to do. Yeah, they're not. What I'm saying is they're all good. All my guests are great. You uh, you had a little trouble getting here, huh? I'm saying that. You're my first, You're the latest guest. It's, I don't mean that in a scolding way. Oh, you're saying that I, I arrived the yeah, latest you from our... an hour and five minutes. An hour and five minutes schedule. late. Yeah, I had... You know, I have to say, in my defense... Uh, they closed half the subways across the river because it's the weekend in New York. And, of course, who goes out yeah. on the train? And so they closed the F train and they closed the... Couldn't get across the bridge. But then then I did hubristically go the wrong way on Broadway. How did you uh, How did you do that? Because to me, it's so clear. Yeah, it, it, it is to me, too. It's but like I, that Freedom Tower, you know, 180-story tower I use as a landmark. Yeah, what, what, I, what I think it was was the Uniqlo store has this magnetic draw. I went there yesterday. Did you get something? I, Some skinny uh, pants? No, I mean, I just, I hate, I hate buying stuff I need, like pants, because I have to try it on. And I just, I don't know why I find, I have such an aversion to trying things on. Yeah, I don't like it either. You don't want to get naked in a store, is why. So you, so you were on your way over here and you saw Uniqlo. Did you go into the store? No, because I was, I was conscious of being late, and I know that you are, you know, you're a particular uh, man, I'm a professional, and I know that you were probably sitting here watching the second hand or move around the clock, and and so no, I walked past it. I saw the Muji store also. Took a oh, picture I went there of that. yesterday also. Yeah, see, so I'm, I, I'm, I was did retracing you to, your steps. Did you go to CB too as well? <clears throat> I saw, walked past it. I went there as well. But it's Saturday in New York, so it's the, the streets are full of... I didn't hear a single person speaking English. There were Germans and Japanese. And, it's because you were in Chinatown, that's why. Well, yeah. But uh, up the street, even. There yeah. were a lot of Europeans, too. So you made it up... You got up to... You got down to Canal Street. I made it all the way to Canal Street. And then you were like, oh, boy. I know where this is, and this is not where I need to be. Yeah. And then, I, then all of a sudden, I was aware, like, I've been walking downhill the whole time, and Manhattan doesn't have a lot of... Slopes. See, I don't even think of the slopes. But it's a, that is an actual slope, and I just I, I was so I don't know I was like so enamored with the city and the smell of poop and stuff on the street. That do you really th- do you think the city smells? The city does smell. Really? I mean, I, I live in the Northwest. Like one of those things that people say. No, Seattle and Portland, the, uh, those cities smell like pine trees and like ocean breezes, and here it's just like vomit. Even with all those grungy smoke. musicians. Yeah, I would most think that of those would overpower whatever natural 
aroma that your city most of the grunge suited. musicians moved into mansions out in the suburbs right. so yeah all the people downtown in Seattle now are like Christian musicians with banjos and tambourines wow that's the new scene is that true have you not noticed this someone was telling me that my friend who lives in in Seattle says that like she calls them the God Squad yeah where it's like hipster Christians mm-hmm uh, you have them here too. I played last night at the Bowery Ballroom. There were seven bands, and at least three of them had that uh, Mumford and Sonsy like kick drum, stand up kick drum sound, banjo players, faux hawk haircuts, and like very Christian Eve four part harmonies. So they had like the snare drum, bass drum thing. And there wasn't even a snare. That was oh. too. That was too much rhythm for them. It was that. Just was boom, too, boom, boom, boom. Too cluttered a sound. Yeah. No snare drum. No, or at least not. A, or if there was a snare, I think maybe some like a bit, like a kind of a big guy with a handlebar mustache and suspenders was probably walking around the room with a snare. You know, like part of the the neo vaudeville. That's sort of an unlikely type of music to get suddenly popular, isn't it? It's bizarre, and I don't like. I don't even know what Mumford and Sons does, so I can't like rip into them the way some people do. I don't. I think they they write pretty good pop songs, but all the stuff that um, that they do. All this stuff that makes their sound different is really easy for other bands to copy. Yeah. So you get this, like, it's like a template where bands that can't write pop songs are still throwing banjo tracks on everything, and it's just like, that's not a good sound. No. Like, four, like two guitars, bass, and drums, right? Just figure that part out. and Then bring in your mandolin guy. Right. You know, after you've got the Th- bass. That mandolin you bought at the flea market. <laughs> at the pawn shop when you're on the road as a goof yeah then pull that thing out Save sparingly. It. but yeah. I do love the mandolin mm-hmm. having said that absolutely absolutely it's one of the things that made REM a big hit yeah. in the and harpsichord I like as well you've known here you, harpsichord don't, you don't like harpsichord I can't I you're, probably can't, can't name one song I own that has harpsichord but it does that's a cool sounding instrument yeah, and you know the clavinet. Maybe that's what I'm thinking. Is the electric harpsichord yeah, I like that sound well. that Stevie Wonder kind of boom, yeah. like a boom, boom, boom. That's a cool I like sound. that. And the the B three organ I like. You're a funky guy. You're like a Motowny guy. <laughs> I am. People don't know that about you. And I like the Korg XQ. No, I'm just making stuff up. <laughs> Have you ever played like a multi rack like Rick Wakeman type? Uh, you know, in the studio we would sit and play with analog synthesizers all day trying to get that incredible sound and you you put it on a on a recording and you realize that like the 1984 Yamaha DX7 already has a plug-in that sounds almost like that. You run it through you could run it through a phaser pedal and have the same thing. Yeah, I was wondering about it when you see the guy playing one keyboard up here and one down here. Yeah. For those of you who are visualizing this, my, one of my hands is up on the top keyboard and the other is on the bottom keyboard. I realize this is a podcast. Use your imagination. Most of that is now you could do it with plugins on your phone. It's not necessary to have analog synths. But we actually, for the show we played last night, we actually trucked a, a Moog synth. We put it in our back, or like one of our check-in bags, and brought it all the way. There's absolutely no reason for it, except that we're like old and snobs. Did you do it because it looks cool to have that logo there? No, because, well, it, it doesn't even have the cool logo. It's oh. the one that was sold at Radio Shack, so it says realistic on it. Although that's cool in its own way. But no, you know, it does get a fat tone. Did you ever go through a, do you have a theremin phase in your? I never did. Because I saw, when I first started seeing that a few years ago, I was like, all right, I get it. It does that. But then it's like, I just feel like there's not a lot of 
it's not that interesting to me after a while. Yeah, I think there are four good theremin players in the world. There's not a single great one. And I'll hear from three of them. <laughs> there are three of them will write to me. 100,000 shitty theremin players. You know, like, it's, it's intonation is so, like, tenuous. And if it's not, if you, if you don't have intonation on it, then you're just making garbage noise. Right. Nah. So. I hope this is interesting. It is interesting. Believe me. I would have sent you packing by now. <laughs> I, I, if the first 10 minutes are you're not out. Happening, are not happening. So you're in town to do these reunion, long winters reunion shows. How was it last night? It was fun. It was good. We went over and did the, did Cabinet of Wonders at um, City Winery. Oh, the whole band did? No, just Sean and I. Wow. And uh, um, the uh, the what if God was one of us lady was there. Joan Osborne. Joan Osborne. I once held the door for her at Staples many years ago. That's one of my great New York celebrity stories. Do you remember when I was here a couple of years ago and did a did a benefit or not a benefit, but like a tribute to Paul Simon in Central Park with Amy Mann? Oh yeah, I didn't go to that. But you came to the after party. I came to. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> that's, yeah, that's, yeah. that makes me sound terrible. <laughs> oh yeah, I didn't go to see your show, but man, that, that thing with no, that was just like a casual sit at a bar. Yeah, a casual like yeah, meet up yeah. after. Yeah. But Joan Osborne played that, and she felt the need. You know, it was a bunch of people all doing Paul Simon songs, uh, and then she got up, and no one had said a word between songs. Uh huh. Through the whole night, Paul Simon was there, Art Garfunkel was there, the mayor was there. It was a, kind of, it was a big show. Yeah. But Joan got up and said, "I just want, uh, I just want to say before I do this song, I didn't pick this song. Uh, it was kind of one of the last ones left, or whatever." And we were all like, "Uh huh." And she said, uh, "And you know, I think of myself as a very positive person, and I don't agree with the sentiment of this song." <laughs> but I'm going to do it anyway in the spirit of the day. Uh, but I feel like it's a pretty negative-minded song. And then it was, Isn't She Lovely? No. <laughs> then it was, uh, it was uh, I Am a Rock. Which is oh, not... I was thinking Stevie Wonder. Right. Yeah, yeah. we were we all yeah, were I, on I, that I, thread. It was I Am a Rock, yeah. Well, yeah, which is not... She, did, she had missed the... She had taken the surface level of the meaning and had missed the underlying meaning of the song. And it was the most unusual kind of rock star moment of like, well, I, I am this person, and I'm going to make a kind of commentary on Paul Simon. It's weird to like begrudgingly do a song. Yeah, like begrudgingly in tribute to a person, like do a song that, you know. Who's also sitting like 50 feet from you. Yeah, and, then, and make sure that everybody knows that you're not, you don't 100%. So just in case anybody in the audience was like, wow, what a negative song. What? I feel like I'm attributing all the negative sentiments that no one has noticed ever. God, we're really giving it to Joan Osborne. Yeah, I hey, felt bad. I don't, like Joni, I don't usually trash. But we're not trashing her, though, no. are we? Joni, you're a great lady. and She uh, might agree with everything we said. It's possible. Um, Doubtful. This is a positive podcast. No yeah. trashing, no personal questions, unless what? you want to talk about shit like that. Is that right? No gossip, no uncomfortable... Yeah. Why would people listen to this if you didn't have any of this dirty laundry? Because I don't really have guests who have dirty laundry, you know? You have comedians. Comedians are the most broken people in the world. You think so, though? Yeah. I think that's a myth. Really? Yeah. You don't think the that... The most broken people... I know, you're, that's an exaggeration. Well, but, I believe, but... But you don't, you don't think that there's a lot of pain in, uh, in, in like people that make comedy their profession? I feel like there is, but it's probably more noticeable because it's in contrast to their job of making people laugh. 
Hmm. Does that make sense? Hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, if I were if I wrote sad poetry, you'd go, "Oh, he's probably sad." But when I go up there and tell fantastic jokes, yeah, fantastic, I agree. And then maybe you see me sad, you go, "Oh, wait, that's weird." Wait, how? Could Am I wrong? Does how could sound- he be sad? Well, no. I mean, I feel like the kind of reflection, the kind of self-reflection that you need to make good comedy, you don't have to delve into that kind of self-knowledge unless you're pushed there by uh, by, by I mean, you know, people that are fat and stupid or and just riding jet skis or whatever, they don't have to think about you know w- why something's funny. They the fat ones do, but I think the <laughs> The ripped ones. And, look, look, and I don't, I'm not weight shaming on yeah, this podcast either because no. it's a positive podcast. And yeah, there's no. Uh... But do you think musicians are broken people as well? Well, there's two kinds of musicians, just like there's two kinds of Jesuit priests. <laughs> I see. I didn't even know that. Yeah, the the two kinds of Jesuit priests in my experience are there are the there are the like third sons in a family of six sons or whatever. The third son gets is usually a jock. And kind of dumb, and gets sent into the priesthood by the family because the first son uh, is you know, takes over the family business, and the second son goes into the army. So the third one becomes a priest. That's just sort of the old old style uh-huh. Catholic family way. And then also the other half of the Jesuit priests are gay, and they're and they went into the priesthood because that was the way they could stay in Catholicism, and right. you know, like celibacy was a way to. Just go live in a house with a bunch of men and, and not be celibate, and and <laughs> probably not be celibate. And in musicians, it's the same way. Like half the musicians are are really basically jocks, right? They're just like handsome, fit, rock star type of, not very reflective. Their their lyrics are like, "Baby, I want to get you know, squeeze my lemon" type of like yeah. lyrics. And then the other half of the musicians are are these like. People that were forced into music because they didn't have another outlet for it chose them, right? They, they they were like, I I have feelings. I don't know how to put it out there. You yeah, get these feelings out. I get it. So you see, you, you know, when you're backstage at a big rock concert, you see it. It's kind of like, all right, there's the there are the jocks over there that are like in the Red Hot Chili Peppers or whatever. And then over here are the Elliot Smiths and the, you know, the people that are like, I mean, think about Elliot Smith and Anthony Kiedis and what they have to say to each other. I bet they have some common ground. Well, had they both, if they were both alive, if they, were they would both, have common. Yeah, they could talk about heroin. <laughs> they could talk about their heroin experiences. But, but I, always, I always thought the Red Hot Chili Peppers seemed to people, I saw them like 25 years ago, 30 years ago, when everyone was... In the band and alive, yeah, right. and it was like this place, the Cameo Theater in Miami. And it was, you saw them all the original one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seen them twice. Wow. And there was great show. Blood like, sugar, I, sex magic. Maybe. Like I don't even. I own one of their albums that I, I. I don't. You know, I don't listen to them. Right. But I always thought, like, well, they're a real band. I mean, the guys can play, and they've done the job. And I don't. know. It just seems like a weird. I know maybe there's a Jocko mentality to some of their fans, but. Well, no. I mean, what. When I was in Seattle in 1991, Pearl Jam kind of came out. Their original band name was Mookie Blaylock, which was, you know, an NBA player. Right. That they named oh, he's the short guy, right? Yeah, Mookie. 
that's how much I know about sports. I know about all the short, well, no, uh, short guys that were supposed to be tall. Are you, are you sure you're not thinking of the Spike Lee character, Mookie? I don't know. I don't, those are the only two Mookies I know. Yeah. But well, I do remember them. So they were called Mookie Blaylock originally. And uh, I went to some of their really early club shows when they were still kind of, you know, figuring it out. And they were real basketball shoe, like, high-fiving white guys yeah. playing a kind of funk like hard funk music with Eddie Vedder in the band. Yeah, yeah, and and it was very. I mean, Eddie's like he was always intense, but their shows were super, like woo, come on, yeah. and everybody's. Uh, it was a real. It was a re- pretty jockey scene. A lot of you know, kind of like backwards baseball caps, but but. Like non-ironically or whatever, right? And then the grunge thing took took over the nation, and really, really identified as like we're this is a dark scene from a dark time and dark people. And Pearl Jam's whole uh, like public identity made a real shift in that six months, and all of a sudden they were like really playing up the whole child abuse angle or whatever. You know what I mean? Like they went from like look at the look at the cover of Ten, their their breakout album. Yeah. Like they're all standing in a kind of basketball huddle giving themselves a group high five. And then you like one year later, they're they've got like their music video is about a kid like going on a shooting spree in his school. It was like it was a pretty <laughs> quick transition from You think they had a band meeting? Like, I don't know. So they just they got you know, they they they, they got the zeitgeist. And they were like, Well this isn't we got to. We got to get. We got to get dark. I agree. Changing the name from Mookie Blaylock to Pearl Jam was probably a really good idea. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, one Mookie of those bands Blaylock. where you have to constantly spell your name. M O O. No, not not Y at the end. C it's C K I. I don't know how you spell Mookie. I think you do. If if they had said if it had been Mookie with like one O but with an umlaut. Yeah, Mickey Blaylock. That, I mean, you can do that. I feel like that kind of band name is good if you're if you're like, this is just going to be a goof. We're going we're not going to yeah. be playing arenas 15 years from now. Yeah, yeah, and that's probably the that was the band meeting they had. Like, what do we want to do here? Be like, so a, did they have a following as Mookie Blaylock? Yeah, because those guys were already famous in Seattle. I mean, were it, they? It, they were locally famous. Like two of the guys had been in Green River with Mark. Oh, Arm okay. And, I know about Green. You know, like the two of the guys were. I know, and then they went on to be in um, that band with Andrew Wood that was going to be the next big thing. Oh, oh, wait. That was like oh, uh, what the God. hell were they called? I could look that. Their up. record was called Apple. It was they, they were they were, and they they were like proto metal. Proto-glam. I don't know. I forget what they were called. But, you know, so those guys already, everybody knew that they were the right. anointed ones. So, yeah, people came out to their shows. I, one of the first Mookie Blaylock shows, because they were filming that movie Singles at the time. And those guys were in the movie. And, uh, and uh, what's his name? Uh, Matt Dillon was at one of their shows. And was like, you know, buying drinks for all the ladies and... Was he? Yeah, yeah. I believe that. It was a hot time. I wonder if he hooked up. I think he probably did. He was, you know. (laughs) He bought 35 drinks. Just law of averages, he's Matt Dillon. (laughs) But 35 women drinks. Something's going to hit there. Yeah, somebody's going to want to fuck on a pile of trash. Do you, uh, 
So you went on after seven bands last night? Well, it was CMJ. Yeah. So, so how long did the bands play? The first band started at 6 p.m. Oh, okay. So, so that almost doesn't... Yeah, it was like... Like tenth of the people were there, probably. Yeah, although in the, in the intervening years since our last record... Like, when the Long Winners put out our last record, there, there was no Twitter. The internet was still kind of... I mean, there were message boards or whatever. But a lot of... The, a lot of the current fans of the band have discovered the band since we last toured. So they had never seen us play. And also, a lot of them know me from the internet, so they they aren't rock people. So this is not your first podcast that you've ever been on? No, I, you know, I, I, have, an exclusive. I, I have my own podcast, but this is one of the first podcasts I have ever guested on. Really? Okay. I don't do that. I guested on one in the UK one time. Yeah. But you know that's like overseas stuff. separate market. Yeah. Did um. So what were you saying? Oh, so a lot of the fans, a lot of the new fans of the Long Winners, I, and I and I say this with all love. They're old. Uh, no, they are nerds, and they've never been to a rock concert before. So I heard from a lot. I st- sat at the merch table at the end of the night, and I heard from a lot of people who saw that the doors were at six and arrived at five thirty because they didn't want to miss right. the show and didn't get that like. The headlining band plays at the end, like in the night. Oh, they didn't. Oh, wow. And so, I, so there were a bunch of kids. That's a little more than being a nerd. That's yeah, kind of that, it. That like sat up by the front of the stage from five p.m. until midnight when we went on. Yeah, I don't. I. Uh, it never looks comfortable up front. Mm-mm. I mean, even when I was seventeen, I wouldn't be like. I don't think I need to be up front. No, it's not. I when I was seventeen, I needed to be up front. Really? But I, yeah, got I got uh, really the. Shit kicked out of me multiple times at like Scorpions concerts or whatever because I was. I once won a Scorpions album. Which one? I I forgot what it had on the cover, but I remember Sirens. This happens every podcast. Uh-huh. People talk about the Sirens. It's my little touch. Yeah, somebody's going by New York, baby. But uh, <laughs> the I remember it was like a thing where I think you just entered. For, it was like an alt weekly, but in nineteen eighty three, and. Uh, I just remember entering and they said, you won the Scorpions. I'm going to have to go pick it up. Blackout, probably. It is a long time. But I went and picked it up. I probably still have it. And I don't think I've ever listened to it. No, really? But I, went through, I mean, I got in the car to go pick up or had my mom drive me to go pick up this Your free record album that I won by the Scorpions. And I've never listened to it. I won a heart record the same way. But I think it was in a mall I was walking through a mall, and it was some kind of like, hey, kid, come on over here. You want to test your luck or whatever? I don't remember what the uh-huh. what the competition was. But in the end, I went home with a with a Heart album. I just saw Heart at Bombershoot. They were great. They were a great band, yeah. They were really good. They are a great band. And that, that whole, like, 80s uh, where they, they had a bunch of number one hits that were terrible, it has tarnished the legacy of what I think was... Like an incredible '70s rock band, Heart. Because I like, I even like the power ballads. You did. The, the How can I yeah. get you alone? I, I, I'm a sucker. I like hooks, man. It hurt me that stuff. really. Yeah, because a little it, It's too synthy, and too much like ah! you know. So when she went up there in the old days, she really like howled. Yeah, and it was a little too affected vocally. Huh. But I mean, I'm a massive fan of like the sisters and everything that they do. Do you know them? Um, I have met them. Do you see them at like coffee shops? And they're a little bit 
they're a little bit of a bigger deal than like yeah. see them in coffee shops, right? But uh, but they I, make their own coffee. Yeah, they they're have really good coffee makers. Somebody makes their coffee. But uh, but Cameron Crowe, of course, was married to the younger sister, uh-huh. and that connection he has a real connection to the city. And I mean, you know, I I, I feel like I know them. I know I know one of the women that used to uh, co-write some of their songs together uh, back in the old back in the seventies, and I'm pretty good friends with her uh, songwriter. But um, what's her name? Her name is Sue. Sue, Sue the songwriter? Sue, Sue the songwriter. I'm Sue. I've written a lot of songs you may have heard. She co- you know, co-wrote a lot of those songs. She was like a high school buddy of theirs. And so she's like a millionaire and no one knows. She walks, she gets it's, to the mall and no one knows. Yeah, her. kind of the best best situation. Like she teaches songwriting at the community college, but she has some Grammys. And yeah, the, when, the, when the quarterly checks come in, they're probably not insignificant. Let's talk exactly how much you think they are. Boy, let me think. What would that? What could that be like? <laughs> you know, what would you? What would you? If you got a check in the mail, what would it have to be to make you like go? Oh, I'm okay. happy. I mean, if I get, I mean, I get checks for like three cents sometimes. Yeah. But then I get checks for more than three cents. Yeah. Um, it's tacky for me to talk about money. No. Not if we're talking about someone else and how much they make. Right. No. No. Talk, talk about money. You know, I feel like. One of the things I learned when I first started working in show business was the people that talked openly about money had fewer problems than the people that were reticent about it. Really? Yeah, because everybody wants to know what everybody else is making. It's just it's just ingrained in the show business. And if in the people who are like, well, you know, like keep their cards real close to their chest, and particularly if you have an, uh, if you have a, if you're paying people. Uh-huh. It's like I'm not going to tell you how much we made, but here's how much you made, and this type of thing. It just it, it, people's imaginations run away, and and they start thinking like, well, they probably made eighty grand at that show, and it's like, well, no, they made eighteen grand at the show, but yeah. but you are you're hating them for having made eighty grand that you're just imagining. So I remember when Sean Nelson hired me to be in Harvey Danger. He said, here's how much we're here's how much you're going to make, and here's how much here's what that represents. We were sitting in a car, and he just told me the the deal. And he was like, cool. And when I said cool, it was because I knew, because he had just been honest and told me what the deal was. And it was like, yeah, right, yes. I, I And I've always tried to emulate that. Like, just talk about money. What the hell? What's going to happen? All right. I mean, I, I here's what I made last year. Let's hear it. Yeah. Let's get your tax returns out. Here we go. Talk about it. As you can see on line 43. I think if a, if a, if you co-wrote some songs for Heart, and you get <laughs> circling back to yeah, and you get five to seven thousand dollars a quarter, that that's pretty. That's like that helps you a lot. I heard someone call that mailbox money. Yes, that's how you that's how you make a living. I think. Yeah, it's, it is residuals and stuff like that. It's weird to explain to. You sit and I just, feel sort of guilty. I mean, I don't feel that bad, but it's just like, yeah, I did this thing eleven years ago, and they aired it on Showtime, so that's going to buy my lunch today. Yeah, right. <laughs> like, it, I worked six hours eleven years ago. Well, I do. You remember the Posies? Do you remember the yeah. Posies? Ken Stringfellow once sat me down at his kitchen table, and he was like, I'm going to open my mail. You want to sit here for a second while I open my mail? And I was like, yeah. And he said, and I'm going to teach you something. 
while I do it. How to not get paper cuts. I was like, oh, okay, Ken Stringfellow's going to teach me something. Yeah. And he started on the top of this pile of envelopes, opening them, and he's pulling out checks, and he's like, $75. This is from a, this is from a track I produced for a girl in Spain. And he opens the next envelope. He's like, $102. This is for... Uh, you know, the residuals on a record that I made in 1984 opens, you know, $14. And this is a BMI payment for a TV show. You know, he just is going through this stuff and there's no check that's more than a hundred bucks really. Yeah. But you add those babies up. He adds them all up and it's like $5,600. And he says, that's how you make a living as a musician. You get a, you never say no. And you get a bunch of little trickly checks add them up never say no meaning like if somebody says well, I want you to produce my album but I don't have any money you say alright well here here's what's going to happen you know I'm going to take 2% or a little something. back end deal as you we call some, it get a little back end deal and, 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 it, and it you know it showed like he bought a house that way huh how many <laughs> it is funny the image of him like I want you to watch me open my mouth. Listen. Look at all these checks I got. Listen, kids. Watch sit down. me. And, and <laughs> look at all this money I'm getting that you are not getting yet. Well, he was. He Ken is only like two days older than me. Uh-huh. We were born, you know, like within a week of one another. But the Posies started making records in the '80s, and you know, I didn't make my first record till 2001. So he was he was taking me to rock school. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. So now, you, do you, have you had someone over at your house when you're opening the envelope? No, I don't like people in my house, but I do tell that story to young musicians all the time because it's the because it, musicians get to be 27, 28 years old, and they think I haven't made it yet, and uh, I and and I don't want to keep living out of a duffel bag, and there's a lot of pressure on people at 28 or 29 to like quit playing around and quit being a musician, get serious, go get a job. Yeah. And I bet it's true in stand up too, you know. You 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 don't realize that you're on the threshold of like knowing something. And a lot of people quit. I feel like a lot of stand ups don't quit. Yeah. Like, I know I can name some that quit, but then you sometimes you just go to like an open mic and you're like, Well, I've known that guy for twenty three years. And but not he's really making a living, but I, I think that I admire those people. Is he it. working a day job? Probably. Yeah. Those people are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, the musician life requires that you be, that you, you know, kind of go all in at a certain point. You can't. Well, same with comedy. Yeah. Right. Cause like if you just stick around New York, I don't think that's the wisest thing. That's what I tell people. Some people think, Oh, I don't want to become a road comic. I was like, I don't even know what that means. Do you want to be in a road band? Cause that would, uh, all the good bands are road bands. But that's a whole separate. That's an inside comedy conversation. Well, tell me about it. Is there what is what is what is what is the phrase "road comic"? Well, I mean, sometimes conjure. it's used disparagingly as like a hack, like a hack comic who's just out playing the like uh, wide spaces in the road. Yeah, but what do you mean by that? Like the <laughs> Kalb or whatever, like playing comedy oh, I, clubs and yeah, or but. Not necessarily where they're playing, but what they're doing. Oh. But I think a lot of people who don't do it are just afraid because you're like, if you do a show in New York, you're going to know ten people in the audience who are going to pat you on the back, right? And courtesy you laugh, fucking eat shit on stage uh-huh. or something. Whereas if you fly somewhere and like some dude picks you up, you don't know anyone, you're alone, 
it's a little scarier. But I think that's the real, I think it's the way to do it. And also you get better when you go on the road. When you go out, when you're, when you're like going out on your early shows, you don't take a friend comic and like do like do a package or something? Um, sometimes you do. Sometimes you can't. I mean, if someone says, hey, do you want to play my club? And this is who's on the bill. Right. You're not going to be like, no, I need you to fire that one guy. Bring my friend. Bring my friend. And I mean, you can do more of that kind of thing when you're, when you have a bit of a name. But, I mean, I still get occasional things that happen recently where they're like, you just look at a tweet and you're like, oh, wow, you booked opening acts without running it by me. Uh-huh. And then you're, then you're like, now I have to hope these people are good or appropriate, not good. And then if they're not, then you have to, you know, what are you going to get them pulled from a show? And that's only going to make you look bad. Right. Because then they're going to be, yeah, me pulled from a show. Right. But... You get a couple of prop comics and a guy that, the guy with the word animal in his name. <laughs> I, yeah, it's not even always that. I mean, I, I, I wouldn't mind a prop comic opening for me. As long as it, I just don't want people who are going to take the room into such a different direction. Yeah. But as you get, uh, this is getting boring. I'm getting boring. I'm going to edit out. I'm going to put the boring filter on my. Do you feel that you are getting boring? I don't think, you know. I, I, just the sound of your voice isn't boring. It's so I know, it melodious. It is a great voice. I do have a nice voice. Yeah. Um, now, I saw on Twitter you said you got in a fight with a limo driver. What was that about? Fight with a limo driver? It was like two days ago. Don't pretend you don't remember. <laughs> like, how many limo driver fights have you gotten? Oh, uh, you know, I, that was that was a uh, that was. He and I did not actually get out and have a physical confrontation. Yeah, I didn't think that. Either. Yeah, it was just one of those. It's one of those airport queue situations where you know limo drivers, professional drivers, town car drivers out west, like here in New York, everybody understands that it is a uh, that it is a combat situation, and that the drivers, all the drivers in New York, uh, practice the same principle, which is never look back. Like you go, and if your nose, if the nose of your car is two inches ahead of the nose of the guy next to you, then you can do whatever the hell you want. You can turn left or right. You can slam on your brakes, and the guy behind you has to, you know, has to work with what you're doing. Right. Because if people in New York were like looking over their shoulders constantly, it would, it would, the system wouldn't work. Like everybody's looking down the tube of whatever street they're hauling ass down. But in places like Seattle, where people are cautious to the point of like stupidity, right? Where where they are they are more dangerous because they're trying to be cautious and considerate. Yeah, like they they cause more problems. And then you get professional drivers who aren't look aren't looking at what they're doing because they're just behind the wheel all day, and they just you know you you you, you fall into that pattern. And I'm at the airport, and I consider myself a professional driver. I consider myself a fighter pilot. Well, you're a savvy, uh, you're a seasoned, uh, you're a seasoned professional. Yeah, that's right. I've driven around America. You're a seasoned traveler. A thousand million times. And there was some limo driver that was just being a, uh, he was just jamming up the whole system with his kind of... Oh, he wasn't even your driver. No, no, he was just the he was just a guy driving. Uh, the, the Seattle Sounders football club was leaving through the airport as we were leaving. Are so they famous in Seattle? They are huge. So they did. Was there like a stopping every five seconds too? Uh, what was what was curious is there's like I don't know how many guys on a soccer team. What twenty guys on a soccer I team? Don't and know. every single one of them arrived in a separate 
sort of escalade all at the same time. And it's like, really, you guys couldn't just like spring for a bus or, or yeah, like you all, you're all starting at one place. You're all coming to the same place. Carpool guys. Right. <laughs> and so it's just like this jam up in the middle of this, of SeaTac airport. And I just, I had to, I had to get a little East coast. What did you do? I was just like, you know, some gesticulation, some, that's a matter for you, you know, some like um, some bada bing stuff. Yeah, a little bit, a little bit of uh, like, hey, this guy, hey, you know, not not a, it wasn't a fight. It was, it was more of a like a. I, I was I was just straightening a guy out. Yeah, yeah. Did you exchange words through through closed windows? Oh, okay. And he didn't have any words to say back. That wasn't East Coast. The windows would have been open. Yeah, right. no, maybe Seattle. You argue with someone who you know can't hear you. No, he could see. He could see and understand that I was like that. I had some information to impart right. to him about like what he, how he was living his life. But I, you know, I, I honestly don't know if he went home and reflected on it or not. I mean, the thing is, you guys, if you met under different circumstances, we might. He might be a cool dude. Yeah. Yeah, you would you would forgive him. I feel like I feel like if I if I went to his home in Eritrea and his mother prepared me like a, 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 a <laughs> delicious meal. That's a real specific uh, condition that we would. If his be mom friends. cooked me dinner. I'll forgive. Him. Yeah, we would be friends in Eritrea. What is that? Eritrea is a is a, a young country that used to be part of Ethiopia. Oh my god! Sort of Ethiopian. I thought you were going to say it was a suburb of Seattle. I didn't know. No, Eritrea. So is something I well, should know. In a way, there is a suburb of Seattle now that is like a little Eritrean. Yeah. But they, or, and it's also, it can be pronounced Eritrea, depending on. Oh, Eritrea. I yeah, know Eritrea. Right, I should have said. But yeah, it was part of Ethiopia. It's the coastal sort of part of Ethiopia. And, it, and but those, but the Eritreans feel like uh, they were being disserved by the Ethiopians and so they, they had a, a little war and then they split off. Where do you learn all this stuff? Oh, oh it's... Uh, I mean, it's, where do you take you, this in? You know, it's in the, it's in the public record. I know that. Now, I'm not <laughs> saying you have a secret source, but I sometimes see people like you seem like a guy who's like, oh man, this guy might be smarter than me. No, I think it's not smartest. I think it's not a smartness. It's a... Uh, Retention. It's, yeah, or, or uh, you know what it was? Learning history and like uh, that stuff—it's—it's it's all about connections. You make a connection between two pieces of information. You draw a line between them, and then you understand both of them better because you see that it's connected to something else. And the reason most people don't like history is that the way it's taught—it's like this happened on this date in this place. Remember that, right? And you can't. There's no way you can. You know, unless there's a po- unless it's like. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. If you, most most sort of history stuff just exists as little bubbles, and people don't have a reason to keep it. Yeah. But I um, I like to draw those lines, and then you start. Then you're making a web, and then it's like, oh, this happened then, and th- also this happened, and you know, you draw, you put it all together, and then you have a then you have a web that that can support other learning other things. So, like, Haile Selassie uh-huh. used to be the king of Ethiopia. And you know that. I did know because that. Because you are a Rastafarian. Yeah, I'm a Rasta. Yeah. And so you... I'm a dreadlocked Rasta. So, I and I learns that Haile Selassie was king of Ethiopia. And that's a, that is like a thread from Jamaica to Ethiopia. And that can support a lot of information. Like, you can hang other stuff on it, like ska music. And then also... 
Eritrea can also kind of hang on that thread because you know a thing about a thing. And you think your driver was from, from this country. Well, and then as you as you start hanging more and more things and you just on, see a guy and you go, I bet he's from Eritrea. Well, because Ethiopians look different than people from West Africa because Ethiopia in East Africa had a lot of trade with Arabs and Indians in back in 1500s, right, or before. So East Africans have a kind of Arab... Middle Eastern look, but you know, also African. And so you can see like Somalians, Ethiopians, Eritreans, when you see them, you, you can tell them apart from like Egyptians or something. And then you start to say like, I know this guy isn't from Ethiopia because <laughs> the air freshener that's hanging from his rearview mirror is the Eritrean flag. Seriously? And I know that oh my God. because you I know what the Ethiopian flag looks like. You should like. go on Jeopardy. Has anyone ever suggested that? Yeah, do you know Ken Jennings? He follows me on Twitter. Yeah. Ken lives in Seattle, uh-huh. and he and I have started a little coffee clutch where we get together. And, and He seems uh, pretty, he's pretty funny, isn't he? He's hilarious. And he's Mormon and, like, practicing. He's really? like He's like a, he and his wife are old... Mormon, like uh, their grandfathers came across the plains with Joseph Smith. Uh-huh. So they're like, they're they're normal, normal Mormons. Normal and you become people. friends with him via Twitter, or he and I became friends on Twitter, and then we started getting coffee together. And he's trying to, he and he, he does this self-effacing thing where he's like, oh, I'm not smart. I just uh, learned the secret of, um, of of retaining trivia, which he also describes as a kind of, you know, you make a web uh-huh. and, but he is actually really smart. Like, is he the number one winner on Jeopardy? Yeah, yeah, what he, did he win? Well, he was like the, he won Jeopardy for six months or something. Uh-huh. Nobody could beat him. So is that how he, he has a house and everything? Yeah. I well, so. yeah. Now he's got a column in parade magazine and like parade <laughs> magazine. That's, that's hilarious. Parade, which has the largest circulation of any magazine in the world. Parade seems like the, one of those, like where they have like a banana pudding pie recipe or something. Yeah. But I don't know what, enough about parade. Walter Scott. If you work for parade, I apologize. Walter Scott. Do you remember the, you've read parade magazine many, many yeah, times. I have. And so that column in the front section where it's like, where it's a, it's a it's a question and answer column, but it's clear that all the questions have come from publicists. Yeah, like I hear Tom Hanks has a new movie. Can you tell us about it? Can you tell me about when it opens and how many theaters <laughs> and any nice things you can say about it? Yeah, that's funny. So we just got off a tour together, you and I. That was fun. That was. We did four cities, two of them in Iowa. It was the Cabinet of Wonders tours with. Uh, Wesley Stace puts the whole thing together, formerly John Wesley Harding. And it's a bunch of people, poets, and uh, a lot of luminaries like uh, John Langford from the Mekongs. Mm-hmm. That was fun, right? It was really fun. Two cities in Iowa. You don't, you don't often play two cities in I Iowa. I don't think anyone same tour. plays two cities in Iowa. Especially if you're going to, it's weird that Iowa would be 50% of your tour. Well, yeah, and the, the, Grinnell, the Grinnell show. Yeah, the last show was at this Grinnell College. I'm not going to say it was one of my favorite shows. <laughs> it, se- it seemed like on paper, like, this is going to be dynamite. Right. Like, the college is bringing us in. Yeah. It's going to be amazing. Big theater. But it wasn't amazing. It was, uh, everyone was nice who worked there. Yep. Most of the audience were nice people. You had a, you had a, you had a confrontation with an audience. I did have a confrontation with a guy who was, um... I think you might as well talk about it. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I agree that this podcast is not a negative. There's no, no negativity no, no, I can talk about But this, this guy. I'll, if I'm going to be negative, it would be against this shithead. Yeah, this guy. But I saw this woman, like, face down. There's like 30 people. I think it was like 35 people in a yeah. 350 seat. So it was just like... It looked like a lecture hall where the professor was boring and people were just, oh, we don't show up. We just, I show up for the test. <laughs> I get my notes on yeah. the internet. So it had that kind of vibe to it. And there was just uh, this woman looking down, just like scribbling. So I just kind of called her out in a nice way. Yeah. And uh, I don't remember what the exchange was, but she was just like, uh, like what are you doing? She goes, oh, I'm sketching you. And I, pro- I don't remember what I said. Something gentle and nice. Yeah, I mean, she wasn't being... A- she was smiling and she was nice. And Your crowd work is among the best. It is. Best it really best. is the best. Yeah. Um, and then I looked... I did some more t- jokes. And then I look over and I see, like, both of them, her and the guy sitting next to her, are, uh, are both heads down scribbling. So I said, oh, I might as well talk to him. I go, oh, you you sketching me as well? <laughs> Because it's just like, I know it's a nice thing, I guess, but it's also you are detaching from the show. Right. Well, that's already not like ideal circumstances. And then he was just like, yeah, I'm waiting for you to tell a joke. It's like, well, you're not waiting for me to tell a joke because I have been telling jokes. So that's just the standard shit answer that someone who's shitty would say right. when they've been called out on their shittiness. And then uh, I don't remember what else I had. Well, you didn't let him off the hook, though. No, I was, real, I was pretty angry. Yeah. But... Uh, but then he comes up to me after. I wish I remember more of the exchange. But he was just, he's like, you started it. Like, this is in the audience. You start, started, I'm not starting something. You're sitting there both drawing me. Right. And you expect not to be called out by a comedian who can see you. I mean, I. Right, the house lights are kind right. of up. Yeah. yeah. What was that? I don't know. Something just happened with my refrigerator. I hope it doesn't school, screw up the sonic sheen that I have on this. <laughs> but, so then afterwards, I see him, like, I'm in the hallway. And they're also, someone brought four kids to the show. Oh, that's it's right. In, Including two, an infant. A true infant and then a three-year-old, which I guess is also an infant. Yeah. And then some younger. And it was just like, why are you bringing four kids? Yeah. Four kids it's, under it's, six. How, how about one babysitter instead of bringing four <laughs> kids? Get one babysitter to watch them while you go to a show. But they were a little, you know, they were just being kids. Yeah. You know, so so the, I was dealing with that small crowd, which I can deal with, and then this guy, and then... Afterwards, I'm in like the hallway, and I oh wait, and then there was the sound man who didn't understand. Oh, the sound was terrible. Didn't yeah. understand how how sound reinforcement yeah. equipment works. The sound was uh, very echoey. My my feeling after after watching half of the show from the audience was that the sound man had turned the monitors on, but not the main speakers, so that the audience was hearing. Oh, really? Just the monitors blasting against the back wall oh, and then my. echoing out oh into the crowd. God. You think that's what was happening? Yeah, and I was watching the sound. I was kind of sitting over their shoulder and watching them. And they were doing, like, they were monkeying with the board like a sound person does. But but the sound only got worse throughout the night. And I really do think that the that the that just the mains were not on. How do you, that's like... Yeah. Not turning That's the it. sound on. There, it's, there's no, there is no way to explain that. Yeah. Because it, you would, I mean, I walked into the room and I was like, what is wrong? Like it was the, I mean, you walk in and you're just like, something's terrible. Yes. And the person that was hired to do it wasn't noticing it. 
Yeah, I don't know how you not. It should be your job to notice. Oh, so the guy, I see the guy in the corner of my eye. I'm in the hallway. First, I see. I walk by the kids. Or I'm back to the shithead guy. You see the shithead guy, right? Well, I, I, I walk out in the hallway for whatever reason to collect the merch that I brought that I knew no one would buy. Um, and I walk by the, the family. And the kids are, like, so cute that yeah, I'm yeah, like, all right, I can't be mad. And I'm waving up. Being very like, how oh, you doing? Oh, you're five. That's cute. Yeah, well, that's good. Hi, sweetie. Boop, boop, boop. I didn't say sweetie, but just friendly kitty talk. Yeah, yeah. Then I walk around and to go get my merch. And I see the guy in the corner of my eye kind of look at me and kind of, and I'm like, oh, he's going to come up to me. And uh, he's like, hey, man. He goes, you know, I was, I was really enjoying your jokes. I just, you know, just, just when you reached across. Like, I don't even know what that means when I reached across. Oh, you mean when I interacted with you? Right. You broke the fourth wall. Yeah, like, I didn't... He goes, yeah, I just... I go, well, I was playing around. He goes, oh, okay. Well, uh, since that, since I know that, uh, here's what I was doing all up there. And he hands me this drawing of him, which... It's like, why don't you just fucking tell me that? Was it a good drawing? It was an interesting drawing, but I was just... It's so so uh, tarnished Yeah, right. by his... It's just like, well, you're it's not a gonna, little late for this now. Like, you're not going to hang it like, up. Like, you're going to be nice and civilized to me now? And just, But I kind of wanted to... kind of wanted to kill him. Yeah. Wouldn't that be? Wouldn't that be good if there was some kind of way that you could, like maybe if you could have killed him, yeah, or just like took a super soaker up on stage that was full of, like, yeah, garlic water or something, <laughs> like something where if you got it in his eyes it would hurt. Yeah, there might be a legal problem. With yeah, that. I guess that's that right. Might that might be would an assault. Kind of be assaulting, assaultive. So I got one of your albums the other day. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> Legally download. Well done. Little prep. I like it's uh what what is it called? Let the the the, the I just look. Let the sunshine in. No no no. What's one of your albums? Two two thousand six. Oh, uh, uh, putting the days to bed. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. So not at all what I was saying. Yeah. It's like thirty five minute album. I like that. Yeah, that's I learned that because the album that we put out just prior to that, the one we played last night in its entirety, uh, when I pretend to fall, was like one of those fifty nine minute albums. Yeah. And when we put it on vinyl, we had to do double album because it wouldn't all fit and it was like next time I'm going to do like a quick and dirty rock and roll album right so I like that get in get out I think I mean I feel like bands should either do a 30 minute album 35 minute album or just like you know sure. triple album sure epic 95 minutes because <laughs> then I go well that's pretty impressive too yeah. but anything in between it's too long yeah so if musicians don't do what you want to do do it comedian Todd Barry said you should do as far as album length but I agree with that like if I like if I had to do over again that long the long record pretend fall I would have taken two songs off of it It doesn't need to be 12 minutes long or 12 (laughs) songs long and two of those songs are six and a half minutes long Um, which is great but like you know everybody at at 35 minutes you're like you're done listening to a record you want to you want to do something else move on with your life yeah listen to another record even well, let's, go, not, let's not go crazy. Go back and listen to that record again, but you don't want to like keep having. It's too long. Like that Cure record, Disintegration. It's like an hour and a half long. It's yeah, great sometimes record. I go on eMusic and I'll like, man, I, I'll think of a band that I should have in my collection that I've just uh, overlooked, and then they're like, oh, it's the re-released with, Bo-. and it's like, like 190 minutes. It's just like I can't suddenly. Yeah, all take the in, demos. Yeah, and demos stuff. and B sides and live cuts and. It's like there's a reason that they didn't release the demos at the time. <laughs> they made better versions of them. Exactly. But there was a song on there. So it was it's called Honest, I think? Yeah, Honest. 
if I remember, it just it was something about a singer and everyone loves a singer. And like, I was just like, wow, this, I feel like the, the drummer should be singing this one. Well, in or fact, am I misinterpreting? In fact, you are not, you, you kind of hit on one of the like threads. Oh, good. The, the song is about uh, a mother talking to her daughter and the daughter is a fan of a rock star. Uh-huh. And the mother is very concerned because, uh, you know, her daughter is like her you know, teenage daughter is like obsessed with this singer, and the mother is telling the story of her when she was a teenager, and was obsessed with maybe the same singer, and that obsession produced a tryst, which produced the daughter. Oh, so the singer in question is the actual father of the daughter who like is a crush on the singer? Maybe. I don't want to, you know, I don't want to like... So that would be a little incestuous. It's pretty, it's, it's a little intense, and it is based on a true story. Really? A true story <laughs> that, is, that is like one that I know firsthand, a personal true story. Oh. Uh, not, not in my own life, but oh, okay. a friend. Who? Whose daughter... No, whose whose father was a touring musician uh-huh. that that he or she never knew. So it, I, so I just extrapolated that it would conceivably be possible. For instance, that what if Liv Tyler, uh-huh. before she knew that Steven Tyler was her father, what if she had fallen in love with Steven Tyler? What if she was a huge Aerosmith fan and her mom had not revealed? Like, oh, your father is not Todd Rundgren like you always thought. Uh-huh. Your father is actually Steven Tyler. Like, that happened in Liv Tyler's life, right? There was one day. She grew up thinking Todd Rundgren oh, really? was her dad. I yeah. didn't even know that. And that Steven Tyler was just a friend of the family. And then there was this... Well, he was. He was, yeah. It's like he was. But there was this moment where it was like, oh, actually, Steven Tyler is your father. And I think it was because she grew up and she was like, I don't look like Todd Rundgren. Yeah. And Uncle Steven is over an awful lot. And it was just like, oh, well, actually, he's your dad. Well, I mean, it wouldn't... And then he proceeded to use her as a, like a sex object in his music videos for a while. But like, what if, what if she'd gotten to be 18 and nobody had revealed this? And she was like, I'm going to see Aerosmith. And oh, my God. And she'd, she was up on, the, up on the front row. And mm-hmm. Steven Tyler's like, who's the fox? Or whatever. You know, it's like, it's a little bit of artistic license, but... So this is a song about the mother saying, like, I know you are going to this concert, and I just want you to know about what happened to me. Wow, now I'm going to listen to it again and really go, oh, shit, that was right there in front of me. Yeah, well, but, but this is the problem with the... Uh, my songwriting is just a little bit too... A little bit more obtuse, or a little bit more, like, I veil, I veil stuff. Because I want, because a lot of people listen to that song and they're like, it's just, it's a happy song about me and and my boyfriend or whatever. You, yeah. know, you don't want to tell too much. I like obtuse lyrics though. in the song, but that's that was the inspiration. I mean, most songs that I really love, I couldn't begin to tell you what they're about, even slightly. Yeah, yeah, right. And 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 so you and you're able then to make it about whatever you want. Huh. But that's what's behind, you know, like behind the story of that song. Do you like when people ask you about your songs? Because I normally wouldn't do that, but I... You know... You and I are so tight that I figured I could. Over the years, I've, I've, what I've grown to like is when people come up and tell me about my songs. 
because I, it happens all the time. Like, oh, that song was so helpful to me. And I'm like, really? Tell me why. And they're like, well, it's just this song about like how you need to appreciate the person that you love and how you need to really learn to communicate and talk to them. And, and so I really took that message to heart and it made my relationship better. And I'm like, interesting, because when I wrote the song, it was about the Red Brigade terrorist group in <laughs> Italy in the 70s and about a love affair between two people, one of whom ended up dead and one of whom, you know, like abandoned them, abandoned their mate to the cops in order to survive. And if you can uh, relate to that based on your... The woman you went out with three times, right? And so, and then, and then, but but over the years, I've watched people's faces fall. Oh, you tell them, you reveal how well, wrong. Early, early, early on, I did, and then I then I saw enough people like get confused and disappointed, and then you know say like, well, we played that song at our wedding. That was like the, that was the, our dance song at the wedding. I know someone who played who told me that their friend played this Elvis Costello song called "I Want You." at their wedding and it's like a song about adultery yeah <laughs> like whoops well done I think it's I want you you should have had someone vet that song yeah but then so anyway I realized then like don't tell people what your songs are about just wait for them to tell you what the song is about. yeah because it maybe it doesn't matter doesn't if they still like the song or maybe the, that's a dumb thing for me to say I don't think it is you, the song once you write it and put it out there it belongs to whoever finds it and wants it do you like when people I've always been curious I don't know if I've ever asked a musician this Sometimes I'll be at a show and I'll see people, people yelling out requests, and I'm like, I kind of go, you know, why don't you let them do what they want to do up there? But then I also go, that's it is a positive thing to yell. It's, but I, it also is like, what are you trying to micromanage their show? It's just like, well, the, I don't know. I guess it's both those things. A lot of there's a lot of versions of it, like people that yell out the hit. That, yeah. that like three songs into a set, you start yelling out the hit. Right. It's like, hey, guess what? The band's gonna play it. Like, the band's going to play the hit. Yeah. But not song three. You Do you understand how, how set lists work? Like, shut up. And, and so those people, they're just drunk. Mm-hmm. Um, the people that are shouting out your obscure songs from your first record or whatever are trying to show you from the crowd. I know the, I know the deep cuts. Yeah, I'm your fan. And they're also trying to show the people around them, like, I know these guys. And that that's its own kind of cultural thing for them. Yeah. You know, I accept that stuff. We did a couple of tours a few years ago where I would walk out on stage for a song and say, oh, any requests? And I would just start playing songs in the order that people shouted. Yeah, I could see that working on that level. Yeah, and it was really fun. We would play 24 song sets, and it would just be like, every time there would be a moment of silence, somebody would shout out a song, and I'd be like, that's it. And so we wouldn't have that business where... 50 people are shouting different songs. Right, you, or, you like, sort of organized them. Yeah, the first the first song that somebody <clears throat> shouted, I would say, that's the next song. And it was kind of a, a fun way to keep the band on its toes, like right. we have to be able to play everything they shout. Uh, so that was fun. But, yeah, the, the, la, last night at the show, people were shouting requests out, and they were just dinglings. Like, the, 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 the heckling that was coming from the crowd uh. was really... Um, uh, I, I felt like it was charming in the, in the sense that people were enthusiastic and wanted to be part of the show, mm-hmm. but nobody had anything good or funny or, you know. At one oh, there was like people trying, not just yelling requests out? Yeah. I, at one point, I even, I, I felt the energy in the room, like people wanted to make rep 
private reference to my podcast and people wanted to say things, you know, like in a Twitter fashion, but mm-hmm. out loud. And so between some songs in the middle of the set, I was like, does anybody have, I mean, do we have some questions? Does anybody have any questions they want to ask? And I spent three minutes trying to field these questions from people that were just like, that's not a question. And, and it's also not, not you don't see bands doing a Q and a very often. Yeah, and, and you know Dave Bazan of Pedro the Lion pioneered it for me. I think he he might say that somebody that he cribbed it from somebody, but Dave would always take questions because Dave was Dave was kind of a important figure to a lot of kids like in, during the two thousands or whatever, you know. And and he would feel the tension in the room. Like people had stuff they really wanted to talk to him about because he started out as a Christian artist and then morphed into like a non a secular artist. Yeah. And so there were all these fans that were like, "What? Why did you abandon God?" Or I mean, people would shout out weird things at him and he would take the time to to answer it in front of a sold out crowd. He'd just go through the room and like, "Who's got a question?" Somebody would be like, "Aren't you afraid of your for your eternal soul or whatever?" And Dave would be like, I'm not, but thank you for asking. You know, move on to the next question. So I thought he would have bigger answers if he was taking questions. Some of them were, yeah, he'd give long answers, but it was, it was pretty profound. So I tried it last night, you know, give me, give me what, what I feel you wanting to say something audience. Like, what is it? And then it was just like catchphrases and, and just audience participation stuff. And I think it was because it, we didn't go on until midnight. I was going to say, I also sit through seven bands. Yeah, some of those That's kids have been there since five. To, uh, <laughs> drink more than might be ideal. For yeah, and, and to sit to sit and really think about the thing you're going to shout out. <laughs> well, there is time. Yeah, there is. You did have all that time to rewrite the thing you were going to yell yeah. during the acoustic song. This is going to be amazing. That's always interesting when they someone like just. There's a great YouTube video I saw of uh, Radiohead. Where he's playing some song on a piano, and they just hear going, Ooh! And, he, and he ignores it, and he's playing, Ooh! and he goes, "Shut up, you cunt!" <laughs> 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 you just hear the audience go loose, just this huge ovation. Yeah. But uh, let me ask you this final question. All right. Because this is the longest episode I've ever done. No, no that not, can't be. No, true. it's good. No, this is good. This oh, is, good. This is this is flowed. You don't go in and edit. Barely, unless, you know, if you, did you say anything you don't want me to? No, no, not at all. I mean, I, you know, I, I, re, I have edited in the past. I don't think there's anything For the most part, I don't know. I think this is, a, this is a set it and forget it. Sweet. Have you ever been asked by a band to be like a hired gun and it's a band you don't like? Oh, interesting. Is that a good question? That is interesting. And then my follow-up would be, would you do it? If it was a band I didn't like... I, I've been asked to join bands that I didn't like, and that's easy. Uh, er, you know, early on when it was when we were all just free floating musicians in Seattle, and people were like, "Hey, well, you want to be the bass player in our band?" And I'd go to a rehearsal and play the bass in the band, and and they would after afterwards be like, "That was amazing. Let's do it." And that happened a few times where, where like you were already an established musician. Well, or, or I was one of. You know, one of 226-year-old dudes in Seattle that all kind of see each other at shows and bands are trying, you know, coalescing. And I'd play with them and I'd be like, yeah, I'm not really into Britpop so uh-huh. much. And this is a, re- you guys are really doing a Britpop thing. And uh, that, that was pretty easy to do. But now, 
if somebody came to me and said... I'm going to come up with a real hypothetical okay. in a second. All right. Yeah, like... Uh, Let's say Celine Dion, who I'm sure is a nice person, but not really stylistically matched with you. Right. Let's say six-week tour, Celine Dion, $10,000 a week, good four-star hotels. Right. And she's really nice. I feel like there is so much to learn in a situation like that that I would absolutely do it. Well, I have great news for you. Yes! I'm, There's a reason I brought up Celine Dion. Woo, she's in the other room? She's my aunt. Oh, wow. I, yeah, I think I would... I think if I played... If I played a, on tour with Celine Dion, I would learn so much. Right. About... Because every experience I've ever done with, with other musicians where they were operating at a high level, um, I walk away from it with a new sense of, like, feel... And so much of being a good musician is figuring out all figuring out all these different way all these different feels. You know, like one of the great things about doing these shows with Wes, it's like his band is made up of these guys that have a pretty great feel, a distinctive feel. Uh-huh. And playing with them and feeling out where their pocket is and where their sense of swing is. You know, I could I could play with them for a year and not have learned a tenth of what there is to learn there. So, yeah, if I was on stage with Celine, I'm sure I'd be playing along with some computers, but I but the music would be would be coming from coming from a very like a place where people had really dialed it in. She doesn't get up on stage and like jam it out. Yeah. Like that stuff's that stuff is to the second. Yeah, I imagine that's very choreographed. Yeah, and that would be that would be fascinating for me because people would be giving me notes. Like whoever her music director is would be like giving me serious notes. Yeah, I think about that sometimes because you know you hear about the people who this guy's the best drummer, this guy's the best guitarist, but I'm sure the guy who plays drums for Barry Manilow is a really good drummer. Fucking amazing, right? Yeah. But you're never going to hear. He'll never get like. Maybe he will. Maybe amongst drummers he will, but well, I, I just picked him at random. But. I had the great luck uh, to have Matt Chamberlain come in to the studio and record drums. From the, from the cult? Matt Chamberlain. Uh, oh, wait. Red Hot Chili? Wait, who is he? He uh, he was Edie Brickell's drummer, and he... Um, oh, he played on the first Pearl Jam album, right? Uh, no, that was... <laughs> I've made 18 guesses as to who this guy is. Uh, no, he he like he's one of these guys that now is the ultimate session dude. Yeah. He played on the last Morrissey record. I think he may have... Because I heard Edie Brickell's drummer played on the first Pearl Jam, the 10 album, the Even Flow album. Really? Yeah. Alive. That song with the live on it. Yeah, woo. This up. I like that song. Good drumming, too. Oh, wait. He did play on the first Pearl Jam. Yeah. Oh, look at you. Yeah. So this guy is one of these drummers that just, he's just, uh, he's just in a completely other. He's a monster. Yeah. In a good way. And he came in and we were recording this song called Commander Thinks Aloud, which has become kind of one of our signature long winter songs. But but we weren't it wasn't a band song. It was me on the piano and synthesizers, and then it just needed a killer drum track. Everything else on it is synthesizers. There's no guitars on it. And I had laid down this piano track, and it's a pretty long tune. And then we had him come in. And I because I played the piano to the click. And he came in and sat down in the studio and listening to the track. 
and he listens for a little while, and then he says to the producer, he's like, can you put the click in and let me hear it with the click? And the click comes in, and he listens for a minute, and he's like, well, no, that doesn't help me. Uh, take the click back out. Takes the click out and listens to it. And he gets to the end of the song, and he kind of swivels in his chair, and he says, the next time you want to do something like this, you have me come in first, yes. and you play with me, because... Um, you playing along with this click, you're not really like very swingy. You're not really very like you're not in the sweet spot piano. Right. Because I'm like playing on top of the beat and trying to keep the song moving. Right. And he's you're like, not, you're not grooving. With yeah. It. And he's like, mm-hmm. But he's like, let me let me give this a try. And he goes up and sets up his drum kit and he, he brought his own microphone, mono. Uh, uh, ribbon mic and he sets it up himself and kind of pu- sets it up right in the middle of his kit kind of pointing at the snare but a little bit back one and mic for the whole kit one mic for the whole kit and he says run the track and we run the track and he plays along with it and it's a great drum part and you hear him putting compensating in his beat for my push and pull and he's putting his beats like in a fashion that is making my piano sound groovier. And I'm like, this is really astonishing. And then he get, we get to the end, and he's like, give me another track. Run the, run the song again. And he plays along again. Same song or a different song? Same song. Yeah. And he does another drum track. And then he's like, give me another track. Let's do it again. And I'm thinking, right, he's, you know, he's given me some options. We're going to comp together a track. And he runs it five times. And by the fourth and fifth time, he's playing this kind of like, he's keeping the beat, but it's, it's doing some kind of incomprehensible stuff. And he's playing some, like, a broken piece of metal with a stick. And he's doing all this stuff where I'm like, okay, now he's getting kind of arty. And yeah. I'm not so into all of this. I'm not sure what he's up to. But, but that's cool. We got a couple of good takes, right? He does five tracks, and then he comes downstairs, and he sits in the chair, and he's like, okay, now I want you to bring up all five tracks at once, and I want you to pan them across the spectrum. So the first track I did, pan it hard left. The second track, pan it like soft left. The third track, right up the middle. So he was using all five drum tracks in one song? All five drum tracks simultaneously. And they lined up? Not only did they line up, (laughs) but but there were... But he had done fills that started on track one and went across the stereo spectrum because he had thought about it so that it, so that it sounded in stereo, like do 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 across the thing. But it was five separate tracks. He started the fill on one track, played the middle on track two, three, and four, and then ended on the fifth. Wow! And then at the end of the at the end of the stuff, all that like metal playing and stuff. He had understood what the song was about so, like, instantly that he created this, like, sonic sort of destruction at the end that I didn't even get until later. Like, a month later, we were mixing the track, and I was like, oh, my God, he he is, he is, he is, he is, it's almost like a vocal part. And so watching a guy like that work... Now, I, I encourage you to listen to the song. What Commander, is the song? Commander Thinks Aloud. And okay. it's about the Columbia spaceship <laughs> crash. Okay. And he, and the drum track, listen to it on headphones. It's five separate takes. 
that he did with he never deleted a take. He never was like, no, let's let's do it over. So he didn't make a mistake. He never made a mistake. <laughs> in and the, five separate takes, all recorded into one microphone, and that is the that's the drum performance. Wow. So working with a musician that's that's thinking and thinking and acting yeah, in music next level stuff. It's so far past where I'll ever be as a player that it's like a you know you walk away from that and you're thinking like right music is a thing music is a language that I am proficient in but there's a, there are there are levels of fluency that Heavy, heavy. Did he? Um, how did you end up working for him? Wasn't he? Isn't he a million dollars? Yeah, yeah. He's well. This is the thing. I mean, you know, Seattle's a small town, and he and and everybody knows each other. And it was a, it was a. Why don't we get Matt Chamberlain? You know, the same way Peter Buck played on a long winner's record like, because it was like, why don't we get Peter Buck? You make a phone call, and all of a sudden Peter Buck's there with his mandolin, and you go, oh, that was great. Right. And so it was like, let's get Matt. It's like Chamberlain. a friendly thing. Yeah. And so he shows up, and yeah, he gets $7,500 a day to go in and do that kind of thing with a Morrissey record or go and do that kind of thing with a, uh, a uh, uh, what's her name? Not Fiona Apple, but the she also plays piano. from Tori Canada. Amos? Tori Amos. He was her drummer for a long time. But so he shows up, and he does this, you know, he does this, like, uh, wizardry. Yeah. And then he says, are you guys paying me for this? And I and I was feeling like pretty big, big wheel at this yeah. point. And I was like, "Yeah, you know, I got five hundred bucks for you," because the other musicians that were playing on the record, you know, I was giving them twenty bucks a song. Yeah. But I figured like five hundred bucks for Matt Chamberlain. And he goes, "Oh, oh, so it's like basically like free for like like basically a favor session." And I was like, "Oh, <laughs> harsh." And I gave him five hundred dollar check, and he never cashed it. Really. So um, he either threw it out the window of his car as he was driving away, or it's sitting in a stack. Was of, he angry, or was it? No, no. He was just like, "Ah, oh, it's cool. This was fun. This is a fine wow. day out in the out, out in the air." That's cool. Yeah. And what's the song called again? The commander. The thinks commander aloud. thinks aloud. Okay. John Roderick, do you have anything you want to plug? Uh, well, your podcast listeners, I think, would uh, you know, if they appreciate podcasts, which they must. Wait, are you about to promote another podcast? Is that is that like a of course you can. Is that a violation no, of the of podcasters? What's your code? podcast? I don't even. I know it's not like you listen to other people's podcasts. I've got to start. <laughs> it's you know I, I I appreciate that you aspire to be a better person, but don't kid anybody that you're going to start listening to other people's podcasts. I will. You know, really? I think if I thing is with podcasts is like I think if I drove, I think I'd listen to them. Yeah, people who listen That's to podcasts around the house, I just get to. I will. You got other stuff to do around that. They're all too long, too, including but, mine. But when somebody, when people come up to you at shows and they're like, "I'm a fan of your podcast," yeah, it's like your your speaking voice has been in their head for I weeks know. and weeks. They I know. they know you. What um, what is your podcast? It's called Roderick on the Line. Oh, you call someone, right? No, my friend Merlin Mann from San Francisco calls me once a week, and we talk about. Hitler and, <laughs> and just and, Hitler. You know, a lot of there's a lot of talk about Hitler, but also about the challenges of being like a person. That's what the well, that sounds good. It's pretty fun. I mean, because he's he's a guy that's had some had some success in the computer world, uh, and you know, and I have this whole music life. But we're both okay. You know, we're both like grown ups that are trying to be 
be better and right. Roderick on the line. Roderick on the Anything line. Anything else? John Roderick, Twitter. Well, I'm thinking about running for Seattle City Council. So if Are you, you live in Seattle, you should you should vote for me if you see me. Oh, I would I would establish residency there. Would you come out if I if I asked you to do like a like a political a fundraiser? fundraiser? Sure. I'm not going to need airfare, you know. Well, yeah, but that's you know, I'm not Matt Chamberlain who just gives it away. Right. Yeah. Well, we'll fly out, put you up in a four star hotel. All right. Yeah. There's some there's some really good hotels in Seattle. There are. Uh, anything else? JohnRoderick.com. Uh, well, long winters. winters. I mean, I, I think everybody that listens to this podcast should go buy all of the long yeah, winters buy, records. Yeah, buy them on vinyl. Buy them on vinyl. Is that a higher royalty rate? Or? No, it's just sounds it's cooler. I think your fans are like a cooler cut. Yeah, above. they're all they're listening to this podcast on vinyl. <laughs> Someone must have made that terrible joke before. Thanks, John. Thank you, Todd Berry. All right, thanks for listening. That was my first ever interview talk with a musician on the Todd Berry podcast. If I had better facilities, I could have had him sing something, but you don't need that. You can just buy some of his music, right? That's what I would do if I bought people's music. No, I do buy people's music. I have some upcoming shows. October 29th, big Todd Barry podcast taping at the Bell House in Brooklyn with Natasha Leone, Nick Turner, Andy Borowitz. Hannibal Burris had to cancel for some reason. I'm going to try to replace him. But don't ask for a refund over that. Okay? He wouldn't want you to do that. And I have some other tour dates coming up. October 25th, I'll be at the Halifax Pop Explosion. Then November 8th and 9th, I'll be in Chicago at the Up Comedy Club. November 12th, I'll be in Mississippi, my first show ever in Mississippi. At Brewski's in Hattiesburg. Then I'll be at Cafe Istanbul the next night in New Orleans, part of the Hell Yes Festival. I think that's what it's called, in New Orleans. Then Thursday, the Vinyl Music Hall in Pensacola, Florida, my first trip and show there ever. And then wrapping it up November 16th at the Cleveland Comedy Festival in Cleveland. I've been to Cleveland before, and I like it. It's pretty good. Follow me, Twitter, at Todd Barry. And uh, what else is there? Oh, yeah. Feral Audio, who helps put on this podcast. Go to feralaudio.com. They have lots of podcasts that they produce. You can listen to them all there. Download, subscribe, all that. Thank you. We'll see you next time. Feral Audio. This is firefighter Raphael Poirier for Firehouse Subs. Introducing the new spicy Cajun chicken sub. Cajun seasoned grilled chicken breast, zesty cherry peppers, and house-made Cajun mayo. Just $5.55 for a medium. Remember, a portion of every sub you buy helps provide life-saving equipment for first responders. Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs. Save more lives. Limited time only, plus tax. Participating locations. Firehouse Subs would donate a minimum of $1 million in 2019 to the Firehouse Subs Public Safety Foundation by donating 0.11% of every purchase.